Well, we've arrived at Ezra chapter 4 in our study of the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the story of this glorious return to the land of promise takes a dramatic turn. Everything seems to be going right for the people of God to this point in the story. Babylon has been defeated. The king of Persia has sent the exiles back. And he's even agreed to fund the rebuilding project. And that itself is a miracle. Imagine God using the funds of a secular government to accomplish his kingdom purposes. And these returned exiles have now had the opportunity to gather together corporately for their first expression of worship to their God who has proven himself faithful yet again. So far, so good, right? But this is not a fairy tale. It's a true story that takes place in the real world, our very broken world, a world that has been cursed because of sin and has powers that are opposed to God's plan and God's purposes. And in chapter 4, we see this opposition begin to mount against the people of God and the work that he's called them to do. We see adversaries actively trying to stop the fulfillment of God's promises among his people. And as these powerful opponents arise, so do questions in our minds. As we read, will the people of God remain faithful? Will Will God's power prove more powerful yet again than even the most powerful men on the planet? Will His will, His divine and perfect will, win the day yet again? And of course, we know the answer to this is yes, but it's still a needed reminder for us. It's a beneficial reminder for us that we find in Ezra 4 through Ezra 6 verse 12. Because we all face opposition. As the people of God, doing the work of God, we're guaranteed to face opposition. We will face difficulty. We will face danger. We will face discouragement and despair all while we faithfully do the work that God has called us to do. And especially when we're doing the work that God has called us to do. And I'm sure many of you who are watching today can testify to that fact. So it's very important for us to consider how the Bible teaches us to respond in moments where we face opposition. You see, the work of God stirs up the work of the enemy. And the greater the work, the greater the opposition. And so, with that reality in mind, we need to be challenged and refined and encouraged today to respond in a way when this opposition comes that glorifies God, that honors the Lord. And that's the benefit of this passage, truly. The, the section of Ezra that we'll cover this morning, these, these two and a half chapters, they teach us, they give us a picture of how to respond to opposition in a way that honors God. To, to know how to continue the work that God has entrusted to us, even when the work of the opposition comes near us. So let's consider this story this morning and all that it teaches us and, and how it encourages us to respond to opposition in a God-honoring way way. Let's begin in Ezra chapter 4 verses 1 to 5. Here's what the word of God says. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached the Rebbebel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Asaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. 
But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So this section begins with the reminder that the land the people of God returned to was not empty. In fact, the Bible says there are people living there who are adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. Well, who are these people? Who are these adversaries? They're likely the people who were sent by Asaradon, king of Assyria, to assimilate the land of promise once it had been conquered. That was a common practice back then. When a foreign power conquered a land, they would send their own people there to assimilate that region in order to help maintain control. And you can see that process unfold in the biblical narrative in 2 Kings 17, verses 24 to 41. These people then were foreign, and they were sent into the land of promise to change the people of God to change their identity, to make them more like the pagan nation from which they came. So while they may have been open to worshiping the God of Israel, they just listed him along the other gods that they already worshiped. And the Bible makes it very clear that God does not honor that. And that that kind of syncretized worship has no place among his people. And so the people of God in returning to the land of promise cannot welcome that into their worship, into their practice of honoring the Lord. They don't need to return to the very same things that got them into the trouble in the first place. And so these people come and they offer to help rebuild the temple, but the Bible is very clear that their intention here is not good. They want to manipulate the people of God, to lead them astray, to protect their own idolatrous worship, and to protect the land that they've come to inhabit, to keep it in their power. Luckily, the people of God seem to have learned their lesson. They don't allow the the foreign people to affect their worship, and as a result, they don't affect their work either. They are appropriately afraid of these idolaters and their potential to affect their purity in the eyes of God, so they reject their offer to help them. And then the gloves come off. The adversaries, they, they show their true colors, Once they know they can't thwart their plans from the inside, they begin to intimidate them, to berate them, to bribe local officials against them in order to frustrate their plans and stop the work that God had given them to do. And unfortunately, they're kind of successful. At some point, the the work on the temple stops until the reign of Darius. That's what verses 5 and verses 24 of chapter 4 tell us. Now, for the moment, as we recount the story unfolding in 4 or 5 in the first part of 6, I want to set aside verses 6 to 23 in chapter 4. Because Ezra's doing something different there. And they don't actually apply to the current story that we're telling. But we'll come back to it. So we move now to chapter 5. The work is stopped. And God sends two not-so-minor prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to come and and stir up the people again to be about the work that he has given to them. And the people of God respond appropriately. They begin to work faithfully, even against the declaration of the government that they sit under at that time. 
when that governor comes, his name's Tatnai, and asks, who guys, who authorized you to start working again? By, by whose authorization are you working today? The people give an incredible response as they're emboldened and empowered by the word of God. And they even appeal to the now king of Persia, Darius himself. And listen to what they say to Darius in order to continue the work that God had given to them. We find their words in chapter 5, verses 11 to 17. Here's what the word of God says. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon. And they were delivered to one whose name was Shesbazar, whom he made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels and go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Shesbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now, it has been in rebuilding, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon, to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus, the king, for rebuilding this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. And Darius the king does just that. He searches the archives, and he sees that Cyrus did make this decree, and he authorizes once again the building of the temple in Jerusalem. And further, once again, he directly funds it from the royal revenue, according to verse 8. And says, whoever tries to stop this work or thwart what he has decreed, a beam will be pulled out of his house and he will be impaled upon it. And his house will be turned into a dunghill, according to chapter 6, verse 11. And then here's how the decree ends. Just listen to these words in chapter 6, verse 12. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. So opposition comes against the people. Their enemies try to stop the work that God had given to them. But at the end of the day, the eyes of God were upon his people. As chapter 5, verse 5 tells us, And because of that, because his presence is with them, because his favor is with them once again, they are victorious. God's people are able to continue his work because they responded appropriately to the opposition. Because they now trust in God more than they fear man. They knew the battle belonged to him. And they entrusted themselves to him. Now this is where the book of Ezra hits really home for me. This is where this section of Ezra really speaks to our current situation. And I hope that that you see the benefit, the relevance of what Ezra is writing here for us as God's people today. I know the reality of this kind of opposition. And my guess is many of you do as well. I see it all the time. And I want to be sure that I learn the lessons from this text. 
so that when that opposition does come again, and it will, that I can respond in a way that honors the Lord. So let's consider then how this text teaches us, how it it helps us understand through the example of God's people then how to respond to opposition in a way that honors the Lord. There, There are three lessons that I'd like for us to consider together. Let's walk through those three independently just for a moment. Firstly, lesson number one, we need to recognize the reality of opposition. The book of Ezra, these two and a half chapters specifically, remind us, teach us, that the people of God, until Jesus Christ returns, will always face opposition. The people then had an adversary, and that adversary used everything in their power to defeat them, to to stop them from accomplishing this God-given work. They used intimidation. They used bribery. They used deception and manipulation to discourage the people. And the people of God fell victim to that for a season, unfortunately. They, they did fear man more than they trusted God. And I think Ezra wants to, to use their example to challenge his people later on the other side of this whole story and then us today to learn from those mistakes and to to be stronger in the face of opposition today. Let's turn for a second to that section that we skipped for a moment in chapter 4, verses 6 to 23, because Ezra is doing something very special and unique in these verses. In those verses, Ezra is teaching the people of God that opposition faced the people of God throughout this rebuilding process, throughout this God-ordained retaking of the land. During the the building of the temple and the rebuilding of Jerusalem itself, the people of God faced opposition. They will continue to face opposition. They'll face opposition under Ahasuerus. We see that in verse 6. He's the king that's mentioned in the book of Esther. They will also face opposition under Artaxerxes. And we see a a greater expounding upon that opposition in verses 7 to 23. Now, these kings come after both Cyrus and Darius. And we'll see that opposition under their rule as Ezra and Nehemiah continue. But what's Ezra doing here as he looks forward throughout the history of Israel in these verses? What's he trying to tell the people? He's trying to show them that opposition will always be present when you're doing the work of God. And if you wait until there is no opposition, you will never finish what God has entrusted to you. That scenario will never happen until Christ returns. The answer is not to wait out the opposition. That can't be the answer. Otherwise, we would never do the work God's called us to. The people have to remember the reality of their work and the reality of the world in which they work. they got to have the right perspective regarding this opposition so they can press forward to do what God has called them to do. If not, they'll constantly live in fear and discouragement. And those two things do not describe or should not describe the people of God. Here's the reality, friends. Like then, we have an adversary. His name is Satan, and he will use everything in his power to stop us from doing the work God's given to us. He will intimidate. He will discourage. He will try to destroy us, deceive us. He wants to stop this work that God has entrusted to us, this building God's kingdom through proclaiming the gospel and making disciples because he knows what that means for him. He knows the the reality that awaits him if we are successful. 
and the power of the Spirit doing the work of God. He will use our past against us. He'll try to deceive us. He'll try to compromise our worship just like the enemies of God did then. And we have to be on guard. We have to be prepared. Just like we talked about in Ephesians 6, verses 12 to 13 earlier, we have to remember that the reality in which we are doing this work, that we're wrestling not with flesh and blood, but powers and principalities, rulers and authorities over this present darkness, real spiritual forces who want to destroy us and stop the building of God's kingdom. We've got to be prepared and put on the whole armor of God. We cannot be surprised by opposition as God's people. Rather, we need to be prepared. He's warned us. So let's make ourselves ready. That's lesson number one. Recognize the reality of opposition. But lesson number two is uh, describes our reaction and the face of that reality. The second lesson we need to learn is that we need to see opposition as an opportunity. That God doesn't waste this opposition, but rather uses it to to build up his people and further the very work that our enemies are trying to stop. Moments of opposition are moments of incredible spiritual growth, or at least have the potential to lead to incredible spiritual growth. Facing adversity in a God-honoring way can mature your faith unlike any other thing you will face. Just look at the example here. The testimony given in our our passage of of chapter 5 is that when the people of God hear the word of God, when they hear the the promises of God given through these prophets, something changes within them. As they listen to the word of God, they're strengthened and they're emboldened. They, They learn to trust God more than they fear men. This is a big transition. In chapter 3, verse 3, you may remember, as we, let, we read last week, the Bible says that some of the work the people were doing as they initially came back into the land was motivated by fear. Motivated by, by fear of the people who surround them. But that kind of fear only gets you so far. That motivation of being fearful of man can only take you so far because eventually the people get too big and that fear arrests you, paralyzes you. But after chapter 5, and after hearing the words of Haggai and Zechariah, their motivation changed. No longer were they driven by fear. They're now driven by faith. They're trusting that God's power is greater than the power of the people around them. You see, opposition provides the people of God with an opportunity to wrestle with their faith. To have it tested and to, to see whether or not what they believe and, and, and the work that's associated with it is worth the cost. Will we trust God to do what is best for his glory and the good of his people? Will we trust him to care for us even as we engage and suffer opposition and persecution? Is this work worthwhile? Because any worthwhile work of God will face opposition. Let me tell you the story about a couple of ladies who did think this work was worthwhile, who were willing to face opposition and indeed give their lives for the sake of the gospel. Their names are Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards, and they died suddenly while serving the Lord overseas as medical missionaries. And listen to how John Piper talks about their life in this passage. Many of you know, he writes, 
Ruby and Eliason and Laura Edwards died this week in Cameroon in a car accident. Ruby in her 80s and Laura in her 70s. Ruby gave all her life in medical missions among the poor. Laura, a doctor who practiced in India for many years and then in the Twin Cities, he's speaking here about Minneapolis-St. Paul, was giving her retirement for the bodies and the souls of the poor in Cameroon. Both died suddenly when their car went over a cliff. Was that a tragedy? Well, in one sense, all death is tragic. But consider this. Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards, at their age, could have been taken easy here in retirement. Think of tens of thousands of retired people spending their lives in one aimless leisure after another. That's a tragedy. The fact that Jesus Christ took authority to make Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards valiant for love and truth among the poor and lost and diseased of Cameroon when most Americans are playing their way into eternity, that is not a tragedy. And that he took them suddenly to heaven in their old age and the very moment of their love and service and sacrifice and without long, drawn-out illnesses and without protracted and oppressive feelings of uselessness, that is not a tragedy. Rather, I say, give me that death, O Jesus Christ, Lord of the universe. Give me that life, that ministry, and that death. These two ladies counted the cost. They saw the, the work of God as worthwhile, worth their whole life, and they were willing to even sacrifice their life. They were willing to face the opposition head on because of the opportunity it presented for the advancement of the gospel. I want moments of opposition in my life to prepare me to face opposition the way that those ladies did. To risk it all for the work that is worthwhile, worth more than anything this world can offer us, the work of the gospel. That's lesson number two. And the final lesson we see here, not just that opposition is a reality and also an opportunity. We need to remember that opposition is temporary. This kind of opposition that we see in the book of Ezra and that we are experiencing even now as we are about the work of God as God's people, it's temporary. It will not last forever. In our passage today, it looks like for a moment that the opposition is won. The work did stop for a season, maybe as long as 15 years. But eventually, the king overruled the opposition. You see where I'm going here? Darius made a decree that trumped whatever the other guy said. And even better, he promised judgment on anyone who stood in way of the work. You know, sometimes it seems like the opposition we faced will last forever. That it will always win. That it will never go away. But friends, we need to remember that our King, King Jesus, the God of the universe, He is the one who has the final say. He will cause His name to dwell throughout all of creation. And He will overthrow any king or people who stand in the way of His work or persecute and oppose His people. This prophetic utterance of Darius in 612 reminds me of the reality we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. You may remember in that part of the book of Revelation, we're getting a glimpse of the faithful who have lost their lives in service to the work of God, in service to the work of the gospel. They've paid the greatest price in their service to God, not backing down from the opposition, but giving their life for the sake of the gospel. And God promises that he will bring justice on their behalf. And then in chapter 8, 
as the seventh seal is open, we see the justice being carried out. And just listen to all that's going on in heaven as that justice is being prepared. This is chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the angel, or the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire, fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Did you catch that? As God responds to the opening of the seventh seal and pours out judgment upon the earth, part of what's in his mind, part of his motivation for carrying out that judgment is the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the faithful who have given their lives. He is carrying out the very justice they have asked for. Listen, one day the powers that come against us will be no more. Our adversary, adversary, Satan, will be permanently defeated and bound for eternity in hell. And we, who are in Christ, will get to enjoy the presence of God forever. Whatever may come against us between now and then should not keep us from what God has called us to. Because it's worth it. We need to stand firm, competent, and the greater work of God. And remember, I always want you to find encouragement in Christ. We can face this greater opposition because Jesus has faced this opposition for us. He's guaranteed us the victory over these powers that oppose us even now. That's what Paul reminds us of in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. The rulers and authorities that oppose us They've been disarmed. They've been humiliated, put to shame because Christ has triumphed over them. His victory is your victory if you are in Christ. So while sorrow may last for a night, friends, joy will come in the morning. You have that promise. You have that guarantee because Jesus is Lord and he is guaranteed the victory. We will face opposition as we go about doing the work that God has entrusted to us today. Here's the question. Will we remain faithful? Seeing that moment of opposition for what it is, part of this broken world, knowing that it won't last forever and trusting that God will use it for his glorious redemptive purposes. I want to live that kind of life. And I want all of us at First Baptist Church of Irving to live that kind of life for the glory of God. Now, how do we continue to do this today? Well, to help us learn these lessons and live in these lessons that the book of Ezra is teaching us, I want to give us an acrostic that we can seal in our mind, that we can place in our mind. And, and when we begin to encounter opposition, the hope is that the Holy Spirit will pull it out It's rooted in scripture and that we can engage it to remain faithful to the work that God has called us to. 
So I'm going to encourage us today, based on the example of the people of God in Ezra 5, to rest in the Lord when opposition comes. That's our goal. We want to rest in the Lord when opposition comes. That's the that's the acrostic, rest, the word rest. And again, it's based on the example we see in Ezra chapter 5. And here's what each one of those letters stands for. R, we need to remember the truth of God's word. E, we need to engage the opposition. S, we want to set about the work of God. And then the fourth one, T, we'll trust the Lord to be our defender. Remember the, remember the truth of God's word. Engage the opposition, set about the work of God, and then trust him to be your defender. That's how we rest in the Lord when opposition comes. And let's let's think through each one of those separately for a moment, okay? Firstly, the R. Remember the truth of God's word. It's so important that we learn the lesson of Ezra chapter 5, verse 1 here. It's the clear turning point in this story. The people changed their response because they listened to the word of God from the prophets. The people of God needed to remember that God was the one who orchestrated this return. He was the one who, many years before this unfolded, promised that it would happen just as he said it would. He is sovereignly in control of everything that's happening here. The opposition is not a surprise to him, but rather a reality he's already told us about. And he is now with them. He is with them in the midst of this opposition and he will carry them through. His word needed to define their reality and define their response. God has told us that we will face opposition and he has promised us that he will be faithful to us in the midst of it. The word of God must always, always shape our response. It has to inform the way that we react. It has to inform the way that we see the world. Because only when the word of God informs our response can it be honoring to him. So the first thing that we have to do is we have to recognize what God's word has said about the opposition that we face and the promises that he's given to us as his people. And then when we remember what God has said, we can engage the opposition You never want to engage the opposition on its own territory, on its own terms. You want to engage the opposition. You want to engage our enemy with the truth of God's word that he's bringing to your mind. You see, once the people were stirred by God's word, they challenged the power of their opposition with a higher power. Do you remember this in the story? The people of God, the governor, they come to him and they say, by whose authority are you doing this? We've told you not to do this. So whose authority are you acting under? You can't be doing this. And so what they do is they appeal to a higher authority to trump that authority. And that higher authority allows them to be about the work of God. And the same thing is true for us, friends. The authorities in this world will come against you. And they will say, who has given you the right to do this? What gives you the right? Who do you think you are? And in that moment... When that authority comes after you, you appeal to a higher authority. You don't listen to what they say. You listen to what the king says. Let me give you a direct example from the text. In the letter, the opposition sends to Artaxerxes in chapter 4, and that, that section that we set aside for a moment that talks about the future opposition that God's people are facing, 
In that letter, the enemies of God tried to use their past against them, to turn the king against them. They said, you need to look through the royal archives. You need to see that this people, they're, they're bad news. They rebel against kings. They're not going to be good servants to you. So you can't let them build this temple. And you can't let them build this city. It'll be bad for you. So they, they turned the past, they turned the people of God's past around to use against them, to, to manipulate the king to be against him. And the enemy does that today as well, friends. He tries to use our past against us to disqualify us from the work of God. He tries to go through all the records of our fathers and all the royal archives, pulling up shameful thing after shameful thing, saying, who do you think you are? What gives you the right? By what authority are you doing this work? They try to make you think that you can't be used by God, that you are useless to him. But here's what I want you to remember today. It is not what the enemy says about you that matters. It is what God has said about you that matters. Who cares what your enemy says when you know that God has said that you are worthy to work for him? Listen, Your qualification to work for God is not based in what you have done in the past. No, and thank God it's not. It's based in the past work of Christ. It's his work that qualifies you, not yours. So when the enemy starts bringing up that junk, you put it where it needs to be put, in the trash. You engage him with the truth of God's word. You say what God has said about you. And then you said about the work of God. That's number three. Once you've adopted the right mindset through the work of the word, then you get back to work. You, you think, you ask the question, what has God clearly asked me to do? What has he assigned to me as a part of his people? And there are some very clear things that we know God has clearly told us to do. He's called us to share the gospel to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who do not know him. He's called us to make disciples, to help those who do know Jesus, to grow in Christ's likeness. And he's called us to build the kingdom by building his church, to to help the organization of groups of people in every culture, nation, and tongue all around the world. These jobs could not be clearer in the scripture. And we need to be about them, even when opposition comes our way. It's not, the, it's not a question of whether or not we need to do them. I think what's really unfortunate is that sometimes when opposition comes our way, here's our first response. This must not be what God wants for us. But friends, our reaction to that moment can't trump what God's word has said. Opposition oftentimes mean means that we're exactly where God wants us to be. So you can't let your feeling in that moment trump what God's word has said. Rather, we have to commit to do the work that God has clearly given, even when opposition comes, knowing that his purpose will be accomplished for his glory and our good, no matter what comes against us. And then as we work and we engage with the difficulty of the oppression that's coming our way, that the opposition that comes our way, we trust the Lord to be our defender. 
regardless of what it costs us, we, we say the work is worthwhile. It's worth our very lives. And we trust the Lord to do what's right. If you are a child of God, doing the work of God, he will take care of you. And that doesn't mean that the opposition won't lead you to a place that's costly. It may cost some of us our lives. There are brothers and sisters who are watching with us right now who may lose their life because of their faithfulness to the work of God. But that doesn't mean that God hasn't been with them. It doesn't mean that he's not faithful. No, God is still faithful because he gets the last word. Remember, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And God is a God of justice. One day, the cries of those who have lost their life, who have who have suffered at the hands of opposition, their cries will be vindicated, according to Revelation chapter 8. Their prayers will be answered, and they will get a glorious reward as they sit in the presence of God for eternity. That's our reward as well, if we are in Christ. So let's do the work that we're called to do and trust that God will do the work that only He can do. If we do this, if we truly rest in the Lord, then I have no doubt that we as a people can respond to opposition in a God-honoring way. Anybody else need this today? I hope so, because I surely needed it. Are you feeling discouraged? Are you feeling defeated? Are you you striving to be about the work of God, and yet you feel hard-pressed on all sides? Would you rest in the Lord today? Just ask the Lord to imprint that acrostic in your mind. Would you rest in the Lord today? Would you remember the promises of God? Engage that opposition with the truth of God's word. Set about the work of God and then trust him to be your defender. Respond to that opposition in a way that honors the Lord and advances the gospel. Let me also ask this. There may be some of you out there who don't feel any opposition at all. And that brings up a different question. Are you about the work of God? Because if you are about the work of God, you will face opposition. It's promised. It's coming our way. That's the history of God's people, as Ezra reminds us today. And if you don't feel any opposition in your life, I want you to sit before the Lord today and ask, am I really about your work? Am I about your work in the way that these two ladies were? whose testimonies we read about earlier. Am I willing to give my life or am I just playing my way into eternity? Oh, that we would use every ounce of energy, every breath God has given us to accomplish his work. And for those of you who have yet to know Jesus, I want to give you an invitation today to step into the victory that he has provided. You're not walking in freedom today if you're not in Christ. You are under the rule and reign of powers and principalities who want to lead you to death, who enemies who want to lead you to destruction. But I want you to know those, those enemies have been put to shame on the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you will repent and believe in him today, you can step into a glorious victory and then join us in seeing that work spread throughout the world. Let's be the kind of people, church, who trust God more than we fear man. And let's see what God does through us as a result. I can't wait to see what could come out of First Baptist Church of Irving if we rest in him in the face of opposition. Let me pray for us.
Father, would you shape us into this kind of people? Would you help us not to be overwhelmed by discouragement, but rather be overwhelmed by you? Help us to be a people of faith rather than fear, knowing that our victory is certain. And if there's anybody, Father, who has not yet stepped into that victory, would you call them to yourself today, leading them to repentance and belief in Jesus alone for salvation? And may we see that work of a gospel conversion as worth our very lives. Use us, Father. Find us faithful as a people, we pray. In the name of Jesus.